The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. All right, welcome everyone. Great to hear the friendly welcomes with one another. And uh, good to continue in our worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab that? Uh, we're continuing in our year-long series through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, for three weeks, today and the last two weeks, we've been looking at the most basic fundamental principles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which happens to be our, our stated mission at our church, to magnify God's glory through trusting in Jesus and the gift of his grace, to live as God's people through authentic and connected community with one another, and to engage in God's mission through bringing the whole gospel to the lost, the least, and the last. So it's in our teaching this morning that we finish that little series up uh, as we look to engage in God's mission. I'm uh, going to look at a couple passages, a uh, short, couple short passages, and we'll skip a bit, so I'll give you time to find that. First is Matthew chapter 9, starting in thir- verse 35, and then we're going to skip over to the last paragraph in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. So starting verse 35 in chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now let's go over to Matthew 28, and starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Well, what a great passage, couple passages to work through this morning. Uh, we mentioned that this is part of the so final part of our three-part mission series. Uh, not only is our teaching helpful uh, to understand what God is doing, if you're here, we want to understand what God is doing in our lives, in our world. It's also helpful to teach this to understand what what your church is doing, what Holy Cross is doing, and what's important to us. And we hope that those two things will always be the same, right? What God is doing and what we, were, we are doing are always the same things. This, of course, is the classic and most famous text for understanding the mission of God. We understand it as the Great Commission, as God sends out his disciples. And he names them by name. It's incredibly personal as he draws them close. He's listing these names, it's not just... So, so that we can have great recommendations for baby names. These are real people that God has commissioned out into his mission, his followers, his disciples. And throughout the book of Matthew, we see Jesus doing a lot of big things on the top of mountains. 
We've been in now 40 plus weeks and we've, we've been on the mountain before with Jesus. We spent several weeks on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus went on, on the mountainside where he describes the, and forms for the first time his new community under his characteristics and his kingdom and his teaching of what it means to, to believe and to follow Jesus. We see Jesus' transfiguration before his disciples where he's on top of the mountain and he's, and he's, he's transfigured before them. And they see the glory of God in Jesus. And now we see the crucified and risen Jesus giving his disciples one final commission, the great commission as it has come to be known. The, the mission of God's people, what we are to do in our world, is a beautifully complex idea. It's so beautifully complex that there have been entire uh, conferences and entire books dedicated just to these passages on the mission of God, being missionaries in our world. And so my attempt this, this morning is, is not to give you everything that we can know on God's mission, but to, to give you enough, to give you enough to know what God's desire is for his people and engaging in his mission. Here's the main point of this passage and what we'll spend time on today. Whatever role we play and whatever mix of gifts that we have, every follower of Jesus on earth is a missionary in so much that everything a Christian says, is, and does should be missional in its conscious participation in the mission of God in God's world. This passage speaks to the missionary then who is overseas. It speaks to the person that feels called to leave their home and their kindred and to leave all that is familiar and go to a foreign place that they do not know and to teach people about Jesus, to bring the gospel to unreached peace people. It's also then for the person striking up a conversation about Jesus in the break room at work. It addresses personal salvation, but broadens God's mission beyond just personal salvation to bringing the gospel to bear on every area of life, including our physical, emotional, and relational aspects of life. And so a faithful follower of Jesus and a faithful community of believers in a church is a person and a church who is increasingly orienting their lives around the mission of God in this world. To help us understand this proper orientation, we must have, as this passage teaches us, we must have the right motivation for God's mission, the right practice in God's mission, and the right hope for God's mission. And so let's look at these as we journey through this passage, beginning with the motivation. Why do we do this? What is the motivation for God's mission? Look at the disciples. They meet Jesus, the risen Lord, and he gives them this final word, their final orders as disciples. When most of us think of the Great Commission, if we were to describe what is the Great Commission and how, how does it go, we might start with the word go. We might start with the word go. What's the, what's the Great Commission about? It's about making disciples. It's about going into our world and into the recesses of our, of our world, wherever there is brokenness and bringing the gospel. But this isn't where Jesus starts. The Jesus commissioning doesn't start with us going, but us worshiping. It starts with Jesus' disciples on their knees and worshiping Christ. It starts with Jesus first reminding, affirming, and claiming all authority over all of creation. Do you see what he's saying here? What a bold and amazing statement from Jesus in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What an amazingly incredibly arrogant 
statement for Jesus to say. This means that Jesus meets with his disciples, and this is the first time that they see him alive since they saw him crucified and buried in a tomb. And he says, I win, right? I'm alive, right? It confirms it, right? That I'm the boss. It's all about me. I'm in charge. In fact, everything that has happened was for this moment. It is, in fact, all about me. Everything that is valuable and right and just is because it finds its purpose, its hope, its identity, its definition in me. Jesus' resurrection confirms to this point, at this point, the focus and the hope of all of creation's history and all of creation's inhabitants was about Jesus. He sustains, he governs, he secures God's plan for all of creation. There is no one who has ever lived or who, has, who will ever live who is deserving of more of your attention than Jesus. More of your affection, more of your loyalty, more of your devotion than Jesus. No opinion matters in all of the world than Jesus' opinion. No perspective is more true than his perspective. No ethic is more right than Jesus' ethic. No wisdom is more straightforward and honest than his. No advice more sweet than Jesus's. No authority greater than his. He has authority over all of creation, all of nature, and all of nations. He has authority over all diseases and all demons, sin and death, everyone's life, including yours and mine. Do you get the point? It is all about Jesus. People say that Christianity is arrogant. Now you see why. Now you see why that claim, because Jesus is claiming to be alive, and because he is alive, he claims authority over everyone and everything and every nation that will one day bend the knee to him. And he is right in saying that. So what motivates us? What motivates us to engage in God's mission? What would motivate you and I to do the next thing that Jesus says when he says go? Jesus is wanting to set out a proper motivation, a proper fuel. He's giving us the proper fuel for what he is about to tell us to do, which is go, make disciples, tell people about me, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It could be lots of things. There could be lots of motivations, but only one thing supremely motivates us here. We are motivated by a joyful worship and awe in the greatness of God. Albert Einstein wasn't a Christian, but we agree he was a very smart person and had some very valuable things to say. And he says this, He who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. So we lose motivation to obey Jesus' call to mission when we lose this amazement in the greatness of God and all that he has done and all that he is and his, all of his greatness and authority in all of creation. When we fail to stand at him and say, wow, look at what you have done. Everything has been about you. The disciples stand before Jesus for the first time since his death and burial. They see it so clearly now, and they are amazed. And Jesus would say, I did it. I secured your redemption. I did all that was promised. I conquered your enemies. I paid your debt. I defeated sin and have now given you life eternal. 
and what the disciples needed and didn't have prior to this. What they needed was an understanding of how all that Jesus has done and said while they walked with him in ministry was a perspective of how it all fits together. What's the point of all this? What has become, what is going to become of all that you have said? And now they see it, they understand it, and they are amazed by it. They worship him for it. They see the culmination of Jesus' work for their redemption, and they stand amazed and in awe. Worship is fuel for mission. Because it's very simple. You cannot commend what you do not cherish. You cannot commend what you do not cherish. And these, and these men are standing before Jesus and cherishing him and worshiping him, and they're being fueled by the greatness of God and his glory and all that God has said and done in their lives. They're, they're captivated by his greatness and his grace. And that's going to fuel them. That's what's going to make them go. Christians who desire to engage in God's mission cannot say, let the, let the nations be glad, and yet fail to be glad in their heart for what God has done. Christians cannot say, trust in the love of God who died for you, who do not stand amazed by his grace that has loved us and transformed us and given us life. Mission ends and begins with worship. Worship is, in fact, our, our greatest end. Worship is the, the reason we were created, was to worship God. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Do you know what I mean? Mission exists. We are called to go because there are places that, that people are not standing in awe of the greatness of God and the glory of Jesus. Mission exists because worship doesn't. There's no need for mission in heaven. There will be no need to proclaim the greatness of God to those who do not know because it will be clear. Darkness will be wiped away. There will be no shadows because the sun will shine so brightly in the glory of Jesus. So before Jesus says, go, he makes them glad in the greatness of God. Before we are to go, before we are to, to take up the responsibility of being a witness of Jesus in our lives, we ought to be glad in the greatness of God. We ought to cherish him. We ought to be caught up in this great story of his love for us. People who have received the grace of God have countless reasons to be glad in the greatness of God. The book of Matthew and this great commission end abruptly. Somewhat unsatisfyingly so, if you've read this and we spent a year in it, and this isn't our final sermon, we have a, a couple more in the book of Matthew, but if this were the final, it might seem like it ends abruptly. You would, you would, you would turn the page and then it would be Mark and you'd say, what am I missing? What happens next? What do we what do we do next? How do you think the disciples responded to this? Do you think the disciples said, you know, as Jesus ascended into heaven then, after he said, just go make disciples and go and do it. Do you think they turned to one another and said, well, guys, you heard the man. You heard the man. He said it and we should do it. So we better listen to him and, and we should do it. After all, look at all that he has done for us. I don't think that's what they said. You see, engaging in Jesus' great commission is not an attempt to repay a debt because of all that Jesus has done for us. You see, sometimes proclaiming gospel, being on mission, sacrificing and, and, and being a witness, for, witness of Jesus' life and death and resurrection might feel like an obligation that we have because, after all, Jesus has done so much for us. And the least that we can do is tell people about him. But when these men were caught up in the worship of Jesus and the greatness of God, 
They weren't thinking like that. And in fact, we actually have the privilege of knowing what they did next. We have an entire book of the Bible, the book called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the Disciples of Jesus. And that's ex exactly what we're told in the book of Acts. We're told of the response of, the, of these apostles, these twelve. They were caught up in the amazing work of redemption that a holy God would look upon the needs of sinful people and he would give his only son he would give his son in exchange. He would give up the glory and life of his son, and he would die on the cross so that we could have the eternal pleasure in him by his grace, that we could have an eternal bond of friendship and unity and relationship with God, that sins would be forgiven. And they are amazed, and they are caught up in this, and they go out as they were instructed to do, and they, 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 they throw open the doors and they run into the streets, amazed at the greatness of God and bearing witness of all that he has done and told them to do. They didn't sit down and say, well, we should probably do this. We should probably honor his legacy. It's the least we can do. They were filled with the greatness of God and they flooded the streets. And you know Jesus today because they were caught up in the greatness of God. It's true. You know Jesus today. Of course, not solely because of their work, but you know Jesus today because of their witness, because they were caught up in the greatness of God, and they did as God instructed them to do, and they were filled with awe in worship of God and told people about him. And so Jesus sends us out too. Jesus sends us out on mission he sends us out to flood our streets, our lives, and every recess of our society. Wherever there is a lack of, of worship, we are called to be on mission. We are called to bring our mission wherever there is a lack of worship. To be clear, none of the verses describing God's mission in Scripture are written exclusively for paid ministers or paid missionaries. They are written for every Christ follower. They are written for everyone caught up in the greatness of God, in the awe of Jesus and what he has done. Anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian, God calls a missionary. It's, exactly, it's, it's, it's actually not as hard and complicated as you might think. And so let's talk about some practices of God's mission. Let's talk about, now that we have this proper motivation of the grace of God that is poured into our life and, and stand in the, in the awe of the greatness of Jesus, of all that he has done, we are to now go and make disciples. Let's talk about some practices of God's mission. All mission flows out of Jesus' mission, and he sends us to engage in his mission and to follow his example. I'll give a few, I'll give four, and we'll spend like one or two thoughts on each of these. Um, but you can write them down if you're able. First, here's a practice of God's mission. First, compassion. Compassion. Even as Jesus makes his steady and intentional progress towards the cross, he is moved in his gut by the needs of others. We read this in, in, in chapter 9. Uh, we see this in 9.35, as we read earlier. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This phrase, to have 
compassion. It literally means he felt for them in his innards. <laughs> Pretty picture, right? Jesus was literally sick to his stomach at the sight of their helpless state. That's what it meant when he had compassion. It didn't mean that he just felt sorry. It didn't mean that he wished them a better life. It meant that he was sick to his stomach because of their helpless state. When was the last time the the needs or sorrows or pains of another person made you sick with compassion? That's the picture here. That's what our Jesus is like. That is how Jesus feels for us, for you. When he looks upon our helpless state, when he looks upon our needs, our sorrow, when he sees a lack of worship, he is sick to his stomach with compassion. He's broken. They were moved to go into their lives. Jesus was moved to go into their lives to ease their suffering, to give them hope, motivated him to go to the cross with joy for us. When was the last time you moved into the lives of someone else to ease their suffering? When was the last time you couldn't help it? You couldn't help. You had this this tightening of your stomach, this tightening of your guts, this lump in your throat, this welling up of tears behind your eyes, and you couldn't help but move into this person's life to bring ease of their suffering. That's how Jesus is. And so practice of God's mission is compassion. It's this identifying with their needs. It is associating with them not just in principle or in thought, but in our life. We cannot cannot help someone out of the muddy pit without gutting mud all over us. Isn't that right? We are feeling it with them. We are, it's more than sympathy. It's compassion. The next thing that we should have, another practice of God's mission, is earnest prayer. What should we do when we see someone in need? We should earnestly pray. We should beg. We should be pleading with God that, we'd, that he would motivate us, that he would motivate people to be sent out into the harvest. As Jesus says, when, when he sees the crowds, he looks to the disciples and says, pray, earnestly pray, beg before God, that God would send out people into the harvest because the, there's a lot of people that need help. And it's ready. It just needs people to go out there and to, to harvest this, to, to bring the good news. This is interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, pray for people. This is what he's saying to his, his disciples. Pray for people to be sent out. And then immediately in the next verse, Jesus sends them out. So this is what Jesus is doing. I want you to, I want you to enjoy this. Jesus says to his disciples, pray. You see all these people in need? Pray that God would send people out. And they say, okay. And they bow their heads. God in heaven, send people out into the world to bring the good news and rescue of peace. Amen. And they look up and they see Jesus. And Jesus says, guess what? Prayer's answered. Go. (laughs) It's exactly what happens. Isn't this amazing? Wow, when is God going to send people? They pray, they look up, and Jesus says, guess what? Your prayers have been answered. You're it. We pray for gospel workers, as we should, but we also pray to internalize the needs of others with compassion that, so that we can move towards them. Being a witness of Jesus, his gospel, all that he has done for us. We are to pray for God to provide people to go out, workers, gospel workers, missionaries, pastors, 
to go out into the world to proclaim the gospel. And we ought to pray for ourselves that God would give us the courage to do the same. And that's the next practice. Not only to be earnestly in prayer, but, to, but movement towards others. Movement towards others. Chapter 9, 30, 35 again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. God's grace is the driving force. God's grace is the driving force of all change, of all proclamation. It is the thing that fuels us and drives us. To move towards others is because of God's grace for us. Jesus knew that we would not come to him, so he came to us. Mission means many things, but we can understand it in these simple terms. Mission means moving towards others as God has moved towards us. And not just people like us. Throughout the Bible, we see God's persistent movement and concern for the stranger, for the outsider, for the marginalized, for his enemies. And like our Father in heaven, we long to see the the strangers become friends, those alienated by God to be reconciled with God. So we do everything in a way that is hospitable towards outsiders and unbelievers. Many churches might have a a come-and-see mentality. And so we create this fortress for God's people. And we say, hey, come, if you want to get to know God, if you want to know Him, then, then come and see what we're doing. And though this approach is common, it doesn't accurately reflect how God has treated us. If God had waited for us to come to Him, we'd still be waiting. The message of the gospel is that God moves towards people while we are His enemies. When we are, in fact, running in the opposite direction, God is moving towards us. And so we misuse the grace of God in our life when we make it a private matter. When we embrace it for personal salvation and then we keep it to ourselves, we misuse the grace of God because the grace of God propels us forward. It moves us out of our lives towards others. Here's a simple analogy. I want you to think of of a castle. Think of this castle, this fortress. And as Christians, especially as we see ourselves as Christians in the context of church activities and church life and practices, the church can feel like a castle, and we are safely guarded in this castle from the world. We are guarded within the world by this fortress of the gospel promise. And we rightly see the gospel in the context of the church as a refuge, as a sort of shelter from the, from the pains and stings of, and errors of, of our culture. We rightly see it in this way. And it's not wrong to think of the church as a, as a fortress or as a castle, but what's wrong is when we keep the drawbridge up. When we keep the drawbridge up to say, let's not be associated with those who are different. Let's not move into their lives because we could be corrupted. Let's stay protected within our castle. Let's not engage with those outside of the church because we might become like them we must find ways to let the drawbridge down. Beyond the castle walls is a world full of brokenness. Beyond the castle is a world full of uncertainty. And there are way more people outside than there are inside. The drawbridge might be our fears. The drawbridge is our fears and that it, that anything that hinders us from, from moving towards others that are, that are not like us. The, it's, it's the fears that hinder us from being with people with a deep sense of calling to be missionaries and witness in their lives. Instead of seeing our church and its values as Christianity's last stand 
Like this is God's, the Holy Cross is God's last hope for Christianity in this world. We should see the world for what it truly is, a broken, sinful place that doesn't see Jesus as king, that doesn't worship him as he should be, and instead finds other lords, finds other hopes, other saviors, and other values. If this is true, then we need, what we need is greater than we've had in many years. We need to go into the broken. We need to go where there is not worship. We need to go into the sinful places and show the world there is a better hope. There is a better Savior. There is a better Lord than what they are trusting in. We ought to be a witness in the world that does not know God, of the greatness of God in Jesus Christ. You see that Jesus submits his will to the Father. Jesus says, this isn't about me. This isn't about what I want, Lord, but it's about what you want. Knowing, knowing full well that by doing that, it would require sacrifice in his very life. It would require him to give up everything, his very life. A real community of faith and a real follower of Jesus is defined by our sacrificial love, our willingness to spend ourselves, to give up our rights, to sacrifice. It is easy to sacrifice for the ones we love. The Bible talks about this. It is easy to love the lovable. And it's quite another thing to lose for those who are your enemies. Jesus knows a lot about this. He died for us. He died for sinners. And Jesus submits his will to God, even at the loss of his own rights and privileges. This is important to note, although everyone isn't called to move far from their home to share the gospel, all Christians are called to leave their comfortable routines and move toward places and people with the gospel, wherever there is darkness or need. So Jesus is calling us to be, to be sent out, and, and some will go very far. And some will, uh, will, will forsake certain things that, we, that others don't. Some will be called to the far corners of the earth, and some will be called to just stay exactly where they are. Not to disengage from God's mission, but to bring the light of the gospel wherever there is darkness. And so we shouldn't think, like maybe traditionally, as we have thought in the last several decades, that, that to be on mission is to, to be vocationally on mission, raising support and moving overseas. To be on mission is to participate in all that God is doing in his world. To be a witness of the greatness of Jesus and his work for us, wherever we are. So movement outward into the lives of others isn't the end. We don't stop there. We don't just go. We must also teach. The last thing here is, is I call holistic teaching. Verse 19, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Helping someone's physical needs without proclaiming the hope in Jesus is like a signpost pointing nowhere. Worse still, it is likely to imply that physical peace is just as good as spiritual peace, or that through physical peace and salvation of our physical, relational, or emotional, or economic situation is what earns our salvation. So holistic teaching is the heart of God's ministry. I've really loved this uh, I feel like the word holistic may have been hijacked through different spiritual or new age like uh, 
things and maybe even different kinds of medicine. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word holistic, but let, me, let, let the gospel redeem it. <laughs> and let me explain to you what, what this means by holistic teaching. Holistic means a treatment of the whole person. Holistic means not just parts of a person, but addresses parts only in relationship to everything that God is doing. It sees that the gospel is not just boiled down to praying a prayer for personal salvation, but the gospel is the good news of all that God is doing through Jesus Christ in all of creation. He cares about everything. He cares about it all. And so when we bring witness of Jesus, we bring a witness to the whole person and to, to what, seeing what God is doing in all of creation, our work, our families, our attitudes, our relationships, our money, our culture and politics and the arts, everything. And yes, never less than a change in our own heart to worship Jesus as he is. Jesus tells his disciples, teach them everything I have commanded, but teach not only to be smart, but observe, to live out, to obey. Jesus is concerned not just with believing certain doctrine. Jesus is concerned with this, this teaching and this gospel transforming us in everything that we do. It's talking about life transformation. When we communicate the teachings of Jesus, we do it not with a motivation to change certain behaviors merely. We do it not just to get people to start believing certain things when they didn't believe those things or to correct someone's thinking to be more like us. We show how Jesus' life, death, resurrection is the ultimate answer to all of our troubles. We show how the good news of Jesus is the key that unlocks every door, the solution to every problem. To engage in God's mission is to share Christ's story what he has done to redeem us from our sin, what he has done to, to unite us forever to, to God in a bond of friendship and, and love. And through these acts of baptism and teaching, Jesus is forming a new community of followers that people are, are initiated into this community, characterized by this all-in devotion, this all-in life, this all-in allegiance to him. Through the sign of baptism, we, we are saying that, that all that I am is you. All that I am is yours. I belong to you. I am dedicated everything in my life to you. I've been bought with a price. My sins have not been forgiven by my acts of, of obedience or through my character, but because of your promise and your work in my life. It's because of your righteousness. And so everything is yours. The work of Jesus is, for us is not just about finding a solution to our personal sin, but should be seen in, in light of, of Jesus' authoritative reign over all aspects of our lives and all of creation. So Jesus' perfect life and his death and his resurrection is the, is the good news for every life, for every area of life on earth that has been touched by sin, which is every area of life on earth. And we bring that good news wherever it's lacking. We show how the gospel speaks into people's lives, even if we're not looking to get them to convert to Christianity. Maybe they're already a Christian. We speak the gospel. It's not just for new believers. It's not just an entrance into the community of God or into heaven. It is a thing that transforms us from one degree of faith to the next. It is for everything. But it doesn't depend on us. 
see if you're feeling a little overwhelmed that we need to now do all these things of compassion and earnest prayer and move towards others and, and, and teach and preach prophetically and holistically to the whole person. This is a lot to do, isn't it? Hopefully we're motivated by the greatness and awe of God as we stand before him and see all he has done. But it doesn't depend on us. Let's finish up moving from the practice of God's mission to our final thought, the hope for God's mission. The task of faithful gospel-centered mission in our time is a complicated and complex task. It's not less than personal evangelism, but it is much more. We cannot merely vote our values to expect God's mission to grow and to flourish in our society, nor should we merely trust on knocking on doors or handing out Bible tracts. God continues to use these means towards great ends, but our time requires that our time and context in our world requires that Christians see themselves in the church as a, as a movement into culture, as sent out ones moving towards others with this great news for all of life, for the purpose of redeeming it for the worship of Jesus. So we move into culture with the good news, bearing in mind an amazing, an amazing hope. And what is the hope? Jesus promises to always be with his people. We go out engaging in this complex task, knowing that Jesus promises to be with us forever. Jesus calls his followers to a costly mission that will involve suffering and opposition, but the sovereign care and protection of God are sufficient to sustain our faith and to be fruitful in the task to which God has called us. Let's think about this as we close. When Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always. I'm with you till the end. You know, this isn't just a cozy reassurance. It's not just a cozy reassurance for those who are nervous or scared. But it is the necessary ingredient for engaging in God's mission. That Jesus is with us. That he is present with us. That his power resides and rests with us that he is fueling us, enabling us to be faithful, that he is even inspiring our thoughts as we dwell on his words richly to be a witness that is truthful to him and his life. As we read this final verse in the Gospel of Matthew, we're reminded that God made a promise to his people a very long time ago. Remember, this is a long, we actually preached this in Advent season last year as we started the book of Matthew. Matthew 1, 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Gospel of Matthew begins with this promise, God's coming and he's going to be with you. And Jesus, in this beautiful, stirring climax of his life and ministry and resurrection, says, I'm here and I'm going to be with you still forever. What an amazing thing. What a beautiful way to end this. Every phrase, every phrase is significant in this final verse. The phrase, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's just look at that phrase. I am with you always to the end of the age. And behold, listen up, everyone. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen Listen up. Listen to what I am saying. I am with you. 
not just his teachings, not just his memory, not just the memory of his examples, but his person, his living and reigning and resurrected and eternal Jesus is with you. Always. There is nowhere you can go outside of the wonderful care and presence and comfort of Jesus. Till the end of the age, until he returns when his mission is replaced with endless worship. The end of the world didn't happen yesterday, for those who were expecting it. But we know until he comes, when he does come back, he's going to be with us until that time, to the end of the age. Are you caught up in this mission? Do you stand in awe of the greatness of God in Jesus Christ for all that he has done for you? Do you see as these bookends of Matthew 1 and Matthew 28 and this whole story in between, this is what Matthew is trying for us to, to get us to see. Do you see what God has done? How he has promised this, that he's going to come to you and dwell among you. He's going to, he's going to pitch his tent in our backyard and, and live among us. And then he dies and he roses, rises from the grave and he says, I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age and then I'm going to come back and your mission is going to be replaced with just endless worship where we will behold the greatness of God in the face of Christ with no presence of sin at all. Are you caught up in that mission? Are you caught up of the, in, in the awe of the greatness of God? If you are, you won't need to think too deeply about what to do. You will just be a witness to Christ. You will share of Christ. You will, you will, your, your heart will break. Your stomach will become sick with the needs of others. You will have the compassion of Christ. You will pray earnestly and unceasingly for God to bring peace wherever there's chaos. And then you will feel compelled to follow Jesus in his mission. I hope you live by this reality. I hope we as a church will live by this reality. May it be for his glory. May it be for the good of the church. And may it be for the salvation of the world. Let's pray. Yes, our God in heaven, we stand in awe, amazed at your greatness in Jesus Christ, that you, God, would condescend to send your Son to die for us. People who are running in the opposite direction, you move toward us with great news, news that would save us, that would rescue us, that would forgive us of our sins. May we be caught up in your greatness. May we find our mission in our identity as your redeemed and rescued people. And so give us the courage that we need, Lord. Give us the motivation as we look upon your grace and are moved by it. Give us the fuel in your love. Give us opportunity. We pray for open doors in our lives, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our churches to engage in your mission more faithfully, for we have a lot of work to do. Until all have heard of your good news, Lord, let us let us grow increasingly dedicated and energized to bring your good news into all the recesses of our world. Wherever there is a lack of worship, Lord, let us be on mission. Lord, we pray for this meal. We pray for this meal in the body and blood of Jesus Christ as a reminder that you have not forsaken us, that you have not left us. In fact, you are with us now, interceding for us, receiving our prayers, perfecting our prayers, 
and working in our midst. Thank you for the sacrifice of your life. Be with us now as we participate in this meal together as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.